Look, staying healthy isn't easy. Watching your diet, hitting the gym, avoiding stress. But a good night's rest helps boost your overall health and wellness. And it couldn't be easier. The new Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed is the only bed that effortlessly adjusts and responds to both of you. The result? You wake up ready for anything. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. During our lowest prices of the season, the new Queen Sleep Number 360 C2 Smart Bed is only $899. Only for a limited time. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. Live by Live has all of your favorite music, and you can listen for free. Whether you hit play on one of our hundreds of curated music stations or create your own custom artist radio station, you'll find the music you love on Live by Live. Visit LiveXLive.com or search LiveXLive in the App Store or Google Play and listen for free now. We promised that if the GOP would not do everything in their power to keep Trump in office, then we would destroy the GOP. And as we gather here in Washington, D.C. for a second million MAGA march, we're done making promises. It has to happen now. We are going to destroy the GOP. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. It's December 14th, that holiest of days in our damaged democracy, when the Electoral College meets to certify the election results and cast their votes as a reflection and will of the people. It may not be over till it's over, but folks, today, it's truly and officially over. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is! Those remaining senators, too fearful of the president's wrath, too cowardly to step forward and denounce the destructiveness of this month-long coup attempt, have lost the last of their procedural cover. With the electors casting their votes decisively for Joe Biden today, we can finally sweep the last of this horrible and disgraceful episode into the dustbin of history where it fucking belongs. If last Tuesday's safe harbor deadline was the final nail in the coffin for President Trump, today we dumped the rotten corpse out to sea. Donald Trump's campaign to overturn the election in the courts has been a disorganized mess from the beginning and was never really considered a threat to Joe Biden or democracy as a whole. This month, rather than there being some final showdown between the forces of good and the forces of unhinged authoritarianism, we saw crazy Rudy Giuliani stumbling drunkenly through the battlefield in his depends, leaving a trail of stank and COVID infection wherever the evil troll roamed. Honestly, I'm just happy to be indoors. Now, as my associate, Miss Ellis, and I will prove today, this election was stolen from the American people uh, with a level of trickery not seen since Houdini. <laughs> Gross. It was like, where's Waldo for conspiracy freaks? 
The daily fusillade of lies and falsehoods compounded to become a tower of bullshit that blotted out the sun and dominated every news cycle. It was Groundhog's Day with every day dedicated to Donald Trump. It was maddening, it was stupid, and ultimately it will have proven to be incredibly destructive. The only bright spots from this incredibly dark moment were the unintentional moments of hilarity that came from the MAGA world. Here, the various lowlives and disturbed personalities delivered in spades. Who will forget Four Seasons' total landscaping and Rudy melting from his face? Or Sydney released the Kraken Powell and Lynn Wood scaring their own party? So much insanity all day, all the time, and so much of it absolutely appalling, yet entertaining. Let me tell you something, have you lost your freaking mind? There was Don Jr. and his cocaine face and desperate pleas to save his daddy. But we also shouldn't be surprised that someone who basically uh, may have soiled himself on national TV also allowed his agency and his group to be infiltrated by a Chinese spy, so... Plus, Princess Ivanka finally feeling the heat of investigators. Then, more Rudy with the farting. And the former crackhead turned my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, offering insane prognostications as if he were Jesus' son. How do you not put people in prison? But the most, you know, they will be going to prison. But in the meantime, December 14th is so important. We have to get this governor in here. Governor Kemp, Brian Kemp, has to give an order to, get, to have a meet, to have a, a Congress meeting or whatever they do, their legislator, and pull Georgia down and don't give it to Biden. It doesn't matter who they give it to. Don't, don't give it to Biden. Just let, and, and find out all your corruption. Because if you pull down Georgia, Pennsylvania, and crooked Nevada, now nobody has 270, and then it goes to the December 14th vote, and Donald Trump wins the election. Thank you, all of you, for being such terrible, fucked-up human beings. Let us also not forget those angels of conspiracy who flew with Rudy all across this nation, swearing under oath to horrible electoral crimes. I hope someday they compile them all as a portrait of stupidity in the 21st century. I'll tell you why. My life has been destroyed. My life has been completely destroyed because of this. I've lost family. I've lost friends. I've been threatened. I've been, th my kids have been threatened. My, I've, I've had to move. I've had to change my phone number. I've had to get rid of social media. I've, there, the, nobody wants to come forward. They're getting threatened. They're, they're people, their lives are getting ruined. I can't even get an actual job anymore. I can't <laughs> because Democrats like to ruin your lives. That's why. My anger and frustration came not from Trump changing the course of history, but rather for perpetuating this never-ending con where nothing ever happened. There were lots of noise and bluster with no apparent end other than noise for the sake of noise. President Trump, meanwhile, has made no mention of the pandemic or the stimulus bill in days. He has instead spent much of his time on Twitter, tweeting out hundreds of unverified claims of election fraud. For this, I must thank the imbecile Kaylee McEnany for looking America in the eye day after day and just fucking lying her ass off about everything. 
After a while, it drives you crazy to be lied to in that manner. I will never lie to you. You have my word on that. Uh, we keep hearing the drumbeat of where is the evidence? Right here, Sean. 234 pages of sworn affidavits. These are real people, real allegations, signed with notaries. You begin to wonder about the nature of truth and the very fabric of reality. And the more it is perpetuated, the more susceptible we all become to bullshit and conspiracy. In the end, the pain that was felt came not from those hurt by the president's efforts or from any systemic change caused by his baseless claims, rather from the time that he wasted. We had a thousand better things to do with our lives, like survive this pandemic. But instead, we were relegated to a front row seat in Trump's clown car coup. Late last week, Time Magazine announced its Person of the Year. And to the great consternation of our narcissist-in-chief, it was not Donald Trump. Rather, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were given the honor. Trump thus far has remained silent upon the subject, but fear not, folks. He's incapable of keeping his fucking mouth shut when he feels slighted. You need to understand that this cover is an obsession for him. Maybe his father, Fred, used to beat him over the head as a boy, but being named Time's Person of the Year for Donald Trump is the ultimate validation. In at least five of his golf clubs, there used to hang a Time magazine cover featuring a picture of a cross-armed Trump with the words, Donald Trump, The Apprentice is a television smash. Well, guess what? That cover is a fucking fake. Trump's first Person of the Year cover didn't come until his upset in 2016 presidential victory. But this was not a celebration of Donald Trump, the man. Instead, it was an indictment of Trumpism and an examination of these divided states of America. What Trump fails to understand about this cover is that it has two meanings. It is round two of an unlikely feud, the president of the United States versus 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg, less than 14 hours after Thunberg became the youngest person ever named Time's Person of the Year. President Trump, one of the five finalists for the annual honor, weighed in, tweeting, so ridiculous, Greta must work on her anger management problem, then go to a good old-fashioned movie with a friend, Chill, Greta, chill. When given to someone like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris or Martin Luther King, it's a celebration of that individual in the public eye as someone who carries great moral weight and conviction and has forwarded their cause before millions of people. But in another context, it showcases the current face of evil to our society and forces us to confront the ugly truth about ourselves and why we care so deeply for these people. These were the Person of the Year covers awarded to Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin on the eve of World War II. And Richard Nixon as Watergate rocked his presidency. Therefore, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. As we turn the channel on this ceaseless horror show and move on from these dark days, 
talk now turns to the legacy of Donald Trump, his offspring, and Trumpism in general. How will history look upon Donald Trump is fairly certain, and the answer is fucking badly. We will look upon this time as a horrible aberration where the worst of us were allowed to occupy and operate the levers of government. That we managed to escape relatively unscathed is a miracle. But Trump will remain a stubborn stain on our collective memory for years to come, as there was no grand moment of repudiation or humiliation. No one dared stand up to the bully to ask him, at long last, if he had any shame. Senator, may we not drop this? I did do, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cole. No, sir. And if I did, I beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir? At long last, have you left no sense of decency? that Trump was allowed and able to abuse and manipulate the judicial system to perpetuate a lie and attempt no less than the overthrow of a duly elected president is a nauseating reminder of our own impotence at the hands of a petty tyrant. We were too reliant on a custom and manners and the expectation that people would act reasonably with dignity and honor. We were not prepared for the sleaze and slime that oozed through the cracks of democracy, and we will have to live with those scars as a reminder of what nearly happened. With all of this in mind, I am pleased to introduce my next guest, Emily Jane Fox. As a writer and reporter for Vanity Fair's political blog, The Hive, Fox has covered the Trump family up close since 2015 and wrote the definitive book on this noxious offspring entitled Born Trump inside America's first family. For over a year, Fox trailed Trump's adult children and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, while interviewing over 150 people, painting a damning portrait of a family without values or moral compass, whose sole purpose beyond pleasing their daddy was the accumulation of wealth and power. That they hold no real beliefs should not come as a surprise. Only Don Jr., with his far-right views and compunction for conspiracy, actually cares or believes in what he says. The rest are carpetbaggers with political values that move and change wherever the wind blows. These people are utterly devoid of class with zero moral compunction to do anything other than enrich themselves and gorge upon their birthright. Raised by an army of nannies and taught to fend for themselves, they came of age as their father waged war upon their mother in the tabloids and were shuttled off to private schools and separated as teenagers. As adults, they are less mini-Trumps than mini-Voltrons of Trump. Like Transformers, each one carries a single Trump trait that when transformed together as a group, create a single Donald Trump. No one captured this better than Emily Jane Fox. I remain as fascinated today with her work as I was when we first met in 2015 and still working for the Trump Organization. Despite my membership in the cult and admitted poor choices, Fox remained a steadfast supporter and friend. Our easy rapport is a result of years of accumulated trust. So let's listen now to that conversation. There's been much talk about President Trump offering preemptive pardons to his children. On December 1, you tweeted, they have drawn their own reality that the world is out to get them, that they can do no right and have done no wrong. It's just not the reality that most of the world sees or lives in. 
If you could predict the future, what does fate have in store for each of the Trump children in terms of either their legal exposure or their potential political futures? Ooh, that's a, a tough and juicy question. I have a lot of thoughts. I think that they're all facing some individual and grim realities when it comes to legal stuff. We know about the investigation into the inauguration, right? And that has some real exposure for all of them. I think that Ivanka is particularly exposed in that investigation because as Stephanie Winston-Wolkoff has said in her book, she said in interviews, um, and I know she has documented everything meticulously, that, that Ivanka was really involved in all aspects of planning that inauguration. And what it seems like from the lawsuit from the Attorney General in Washington, D.C., is that the Trump inaugural committee, which is a nonprofit, was self-dealing to the Trump organization. And that is against the law. And it seems like there is real documented proof of that happening, or at least the Attorney General of D.C. believes there is documented proof. So I think that there is some exposure there. As you know better than anybody, there seems to be real exposure for all of them when it comes to taxes in New York state and whatever will come of a, a federal pardon from the president. And I do believe that he will pardon his children. There still seems to be some real serious risk when it comes to state's attorney generals prosecuting all of the children. Now, in terms of their political fate, I will tell you, it, you know, Don Jr. has always believe that he has a future in real red state, red meat politics, which makes no sense because he is truly the definition of, of silver spoon uh, child. But but he believes he, he speaks for the middle of this country and he feels like he's sort of a rising star in that portion of the Republican Party. But the chatter I am hearing most now, which for so long had been poo-pooed by people around Ivanka, is now that she is strongly considering a political future of her own. For the past four years, I have asked the question of her people and the people closest to her, is she going to run? And everyone has said, she's not interested in that. And, and for a while, I believed it because I feel like she would rather be princess than president. I truly believe that. But I, I now am starting to hear enough chatter that she is strongly considering her own political future that it's kind of hard to ignore. Well, you know, Laura Trump, I have heard through the grapevine, is expressing an interest in running as well. It's incredible that an individual who couldn't even make it on Access Hollywood or E.T. or whatever stupid ass show that she was involved with that the only reason that she was able to ever get herself on television was when she got engaged to Eric yes. and started using the Trump last name as if it was her golden ticket. I mean, Emily, in all fairness, nobody knows the Trump children, in my opinion, better than you. And I think that your book, Born Trump, is probably the greatest handbook to understanding Trump's children and Trump himself. Thank you. That's that from you who knows the children better than anyone and was uh, you were just so instrumental in explaining them to me over the years. You've been my true whisperer and understanding the family. And I think that what's so nice now is that everybody gets to hear your wisdom about the Trump family and everything in the Trump organization and beyond. But it's so interesting when I was writing the book and now now I watch all of their actions and their, their past really do explain their present actions 
believe will happen in the future. You know, Laura Trump, speaking of her, was like a baker in North Carolina. She's not like some great political mind who came up through the ranks thinking that this was going to be a senator someday. She was like a baker and a model who like had waitressing jobs. This was not someone whose future was destined to be on a stage in Washington, DC, talking to the entire country. And all of them were like this. What I think is happening is they, they believe that half the country who hates them are completely out to get them partisan Democrats who will tear them down no matter what they do. So they don't hear the criticism against them and take it to heart. But what they do hear is the yes people they surround themselves with. So they have painted anyone who doesn't agree with what they do as insane, crazy people who want to take them down and only listen to the people in their heads who they're likely either paying or giving something to who say, you guys are the greatest thing since sliced bread and you should you should run for office. You deserve to run for office. You're smart enough to run for office. And it's created this completely distorted reality. And it it really does help explain why they have deluded themselves into believing that they are deserving of these opportunities that they so clearly don't deserve. Well, let's talk about them as children then, because I know that in Born Trump, that that was a big part in terms of what has created them as the adults that they are looking back at their childhood. Because I've always said this, that all three of them, Don, Ivanka, and Eric, are emotionally starved children because neither Donald or Ivana were present in their childhood and were horrific role models for them, which is why they are all so desperate to please Donald Trump Sr. Explain what you found in your book, if you would. So by all accounts, as children, the Trump family had everything that anyone could ever want. They had incredible homes. They had access to the best educational operations. They had nannies, they had maids, they had grandparents. It was, it was such a fortunate childhood, but uh, as, as sorry as you can feel for rich children, I actually feel a great deal of sympathy for them because they had two of the worst parents that I've ever witnessed in any of my reporting in any of my personal life. Let me just break it down for you and I'll explain sort of what happened in their childhood and then how I think that that informs what happens now on a daily basis. So um, when they were growing up, they were very close to their maternal grandparents who were Czechoslovakian. And uh, particularly Don Jr. spent a great deal of time with his grandfather. They would go to the Czech Republic every summer. They would go hunting, they'd go fishing. They'd spend a great deal of time outdoors and with him. And that was such a difference from the kind of time that they would spend with their own father, which was only time on his terms. It was time in his office. It was time when he was home, which was very infrequently. And so that they, that they had someone who would dote on them, who would teach them things. It really appealed to them. Now, their parents had a very messy, very public divorce, maybe one of the most public divorces of all time. And it happened when Don Jr. was 12, Ivanka was nine, and Eric was six. So they saw this, this cheating scandal that played out uh, by their parents' design in two New York tabloids, the New York Post and the Daily News. And reporters would follow the kids on their way to school every single day, holding up pictures 
of the front pages that had Marla Maples saying it was the best sex I ever had, which was a line that was obviously leaked by Donald Trump to the paper. And the reporters would ask Ivanka, who was nine years old, what do you think of this? And the paparazzi would be taking her picture on the way to school. And Donald Trump Sr. moved out of their apartment and Ivanka would call him and say, basically like, is my last name still going to be Trump? And all of them worried about whether or not their father would still be around, whether or not he would love them, whether he would replace them with another woman or other children. All of those things happened. So their, their worrying was totally founded. But what I think it created was, and it plays out differently for all of them, but the dynamic is as a child, if you feel like your father's love is going to be conditional and it's not a given that it's there, then you spend the rest of your life trying to shore up that love. And what has become very clear to me watching these adults as I've watched them as closely as I have over the last five years is that they are constantly seeking the love and approval of their father the same way that they did when they were 12, nine and six years old. They are desperately trying to keep him in their orbit. And I think that that is, has really been shaped by the way that, that he parented them as a, as a child. And now you see it playing out in the White House, see them, you saw them how they talked on stage at the RNC this summer. They were speaking directly to their dad, saying like, dad, I love you. I'm always with you, which is so weird to hear on stage at an RNC. And it felt like, can't you just pick up the phone and call him? You, you have to have like, these public displays of telling your father you're with him. Can you imagine if your children got up on stage and the only way for them to really have you hear them was to profess that to millions of people. It's a very strange dynamic, but if you understand their history as a family, you understand why they feel like they constantly need to be demonstrating their, their love and, and affection for him to keep him. Well, the one that actually shocked me the most was Tiffany mm. because Tiffany was always regarded as the redheaded stepchild. Yes. She was always the imperfect one, always being measured up to Ivanka. And not only did Donald do that, which I thought was disgraceful as a father, but so did Ivanka and Don and Eric, which is interesting because I think Tiffany looks the most like Eric. They look identical. Right? They all have that. That it, I mean, if Eric put on a, <laughs> a long blonde wig, I think it would be Tiffany. Totally. But it's interesting that they would that they would get Tiffany, who really, again, spent less time with Donald in her entire lifetime than I did in one yes. week of being in his office. And yet there she is professing this undying love and respect and admiration for my father. And so none of her friends right now, as you may be aware, are speaking to her because her social position has changed so much that these people don't either recognize her as being the Tiffany that they used to know or worse than that, they realize that she's lying through her teeth, which is really a pastime of not just the Trump children, but that they've learned from the biggest liar in chief, their father. Well, that that trait, I think, is it's both nature and nurture there. Right. But but Tiffany wasn't nurtured by Donald at all. She grew up all the way across the country. She would spend one week at spring break at Mar-a-Lago. The rest of the time, he'd maybe write her a letter or call her like he spent no time really as her father. She really didn't spend a great deal of time with her siblings either. It wasn't really until she got to college on the East Coast in the height of the apprentice fame 
that she really started to understand what the perks of being a Trump were like. And as soon as she got used to that, the, the last name Trump sort of became a ding. And I would say the first few years of the administration, she was around, but she wasn't really leaning into it. And I think that what happened with Tiffany, sort of what happened with all of them is that their social circles that they used to occupy rejected them. They were like a bad organ transplant at that point. And they hardened to it. Like their hearts hardened, their, all their cell walls hardened. And they, they started to believe this deluded reality that the rest of the world was out to get them. And they sort of hardened into the position of like, of like the worst aspects of, of what Trump stands for. They believe that like, it was us against them. And so I think that what happened with Tiffany is sort of what happened with all of them. The transformation just seemed greater because she wasn't involved with most of it, but they all just really grew into these, the worst versions of themselves that were so insular and devoid from reality. And, and all they, they see the world in just a totally different way than the rest of the world sees them. Well, Emily, let's go back to Princess Ivanka, mm. who was a big topic, of course, in Born Trump, which, I, I, again, I loved your book. Ugh. Ivanka has tried to place herself above the fray of her father's politics, but the current investigation into the inaugural spending saw her deposed last week. Now, her response was more partisan-sounding than ever with reference to the Democratic AG. You've been covering Ivanka for a while now. So if you can, walk me through what's happening to her now and how her response foreshadows her future as a more partisan and Trumpian figure than she has been to date. You know what's amazing? She said the Democrat AG, not the Democratic. And I think it's such a small distinction, but it's a very important distinction because to use the term Democrat is an old Republican tactic. It's like a it's like a, it turns the party name into a, a, like a slur word. And, and it's, it used to be this like very specific way that Republicans would refer to, to Democrats. Um, and, and that really stuck out to me. And I think it's a perfect little example of how she's really transforming into a Republican. You know, she didn't even, she wasn't even to vote for her father in the 2016 primary because she was registered as an independent. She couldn't even cast a vote for her own dad because of that. And she obviously switched her party uh, in the 2016 election because it looked good for her dad. But what I've witnessed is a real slow crawl toward the right because the left no longer accepts her. They reject her. And I think you saw a few months ago, she even said that she's pro-life, which if that is if that is what she believes, Everyone has the right to, to feel the way that they want to feel, but that is not the Ivanka that I started covering. That is not the Ivanka that her friends who have known her for decades knew. And the, the true thing about her, and I think this is true of her father and her siblings too, is they don't believe in anything, right? They, they donated to Democrats. They had the Clintons at their wedding. They had Cory Booker at their wedding. They, like they don't have core beliefs. What, occupies their soul it's the desire for power and the desire for money and so if it will serve them better to say that she is pro-life or to call democrats 
you know, nasty words or, or say these partisan hacks are out to get me, she will say it not because she believes it, but because she thinks it will be better for her in her political future, whatever that may hold for her. And it's it's a tactic right out of her father's playbook. Most of her tactics are if you try and discredit the people who are holding you legally accountable for the things you should be accountable for, then people can be brainwashed into believing that anything that could happen to you was just an attempt to take you down. Now, I think she actually buys what she's selling. That's the the crazy part is I think she believes that everyone is off to get her. I know the people who are close to Jared Kushner, her husband, around uh, the Mueller report. I remember the day the Mueller report came out and someone very close to him called me and it sounded like he had just won the biggest lottery jackpot of all time. And the sentiment from that world was, I told you for months, everyone was out to get us. They had a target on our back. They had nothing. This whole thing was a witch hunt. And they've really, truly believed that. Now, that's not true. There were things that were reasonable for the government to look into. It was not a partisan witch hunt to take down Donald Trump. The government was doing what the government felt it needed to do. And I think that that ethos has completely permeated the way that Ivanka and Jared and her siblings see the world, that they just have have deluded themselves into believing that that they have people who are out to get them and that they they don't have any core beliefs in anything, but they have, have really started to talk the way that they think will serve them politically going forward. So then describe for me, if you would, the damage control that's going on behind the scenes currently and frankly on her Twitter feed to rehab her image to the American people that her family was not the worst thing to happen to this country in history. You know, it's I think about this all the time. The week before the 2016 election, I had written a story based on people who worked on her branding, who were currently working on her branding at that point. Uh, And they had a whole strategy in place for how to get Ivanka Trump, the brand back on track after Donald Trump lost in 2016. And I wrote this whole story based on their whole strategy. And the idea was if and when he lost in November of 2016 to shut up, to stay quiet, to have a very successful holiday season that year and then come back in January with gangbuster sales numbers. And then she would slowly start to sort of reintroduce herself to the scene. And she would never have to comment about her dad's loss again. The numbers would speak for herself and she would slowly just start appearing and try and put the whole thing behind them. And so I know how the Ivanka Trump image machine works because I witnessed it four years ago. And I can witness it happening right now. And what I think will happen is she's not going to go silently away because she uh, she knows she can't do that anymore. She's not she's no longer the private citizen who had a schmata business. She's she's a very public figure and has taken every opportunity to be a public figure over the last five years ad nauseum. But what I think will happen is you will see her continue to post these. Uh, like greatest highlights of the most important meetings that she's had over the last five years. So you already see it happening. She's posting photos of her in schools and uh, meeting with CEOs and meeting with world leaders. And she's sort of doing this thing to show how important she believes she has been to, to the 
least offensive parts of the Trump administration. So the jobs they did create over the last four years or um, the the very few humanitarian things that she was part of over the last four years, she's, she's very carefully, very calculatedly making sure that people see that. And people aren't dumb. I think she thinks people are a lot stupider than they actually are. And what she's trying to do is like rewrite this narrative that she was part of this, that she was Princess Diana over the last four years. When in reality, she said nothing when her father put children in cages at the border. She said nothing when he said that there were very fine people on both sides of those Charlottesville protests. She said nothing when there was a Muslim travel ban and families were separated there. She did nothing when the worst things of this administration happened. She said nothing, but what she is trying to do is create this this altered reality of all the wonderful things she did so that when she tries to reinvent herself as a newfangled Princess Diana, she'll have a photographic paper trail of the people she met with and the the children she hugged along the way. Right, there'll be some sort of a scrapbook. Just look at her Instagram. $29.99. Yes. Exactly. Ivanka and her meetings. That'll be the name of the book. Because what I really loved, (laughs) I love the Joyce Vance tweet that you posted before the election in reference to Ivanka and Jared's possibly suing the Lincoln Project over their COVID billboards. And Vance said, Jared and Ivanka's reputations as White House advisors are so bad that they are libel proof. In other words, like mobster Bubi Sersani, right, who a court denied relief to over the movie Donnie Brasco. And by the way, he was over at Otisville, where I was. Their reputations are so bad, they can't be damaged any further. Discuss this with me. It's pretty amazing. It's an amazing statement. And I I agree with it. They like they are tied to the worst aspects of this administration. I just ran through just a small number of the things that they're tied to, but but they were involved in everything. And part of that is their own design. Like they spent basically two years trying to make it seem like they were the only people who mattered in the West Wing, but it goes both ways. If you were trying to make it seem like you were the only voices that the president listened to, and then he does crazy, terrible shit, well, then did he not listen to your voice when the crazy, terrible shit happened, but he listened to your voice when the the kind of good things happened that you can't have it both ways. And they tried to play it both ways for a long time and it did, didn't work. People saw right through it. So their reputations are dirt. They, they're worth nothing to people who have a moral center. There are some people in New York City, in New Jersey, in Palm Beach, who love the things that happened to their taxes, who love the things that happened in Israel, and who will forgive the the worst parts of this administration because those things mean more to them than basic human decency. But the vast majority of this country, we now know because they voted this way, don't support the things that the president stood for. And even the people who voted for him again were doing so largely holding their nose about those terrible things. And because Ivanka and Jared were so calculated in making it seem that they were so important in this administration, they will forever be linked to all of the terribleness that we've witnessed over the last four years. And there's no there's no accounting for what that does to people's reputations. They will forever be known 
as the greatest enablers to one of the worst presidents, probably the worst president in the history of the United States. But do you remember many, many years ago, one of the first times that we ever met, and it was before the 2015 um, cycle where Trump came down the famous mm -hmm. escalator and um, shit all over Mexico and Mexicans and so on. Do you remember I described the three children and how I described them? It was kind of like I compared them to vultures. Give me the description. It's my favorite description. I use it in my book. I, I, I think about it all the time. Just lay it out for people so that they can hear it from you. So Voltron is this robot that is formed when mini bots all come together to form one big giant bot, right? So you have three or four mini bots, whatever it was, and they, they form to, together, right? Uh, one becomes the head, one becomes the torso, one becomes the legs, and so on. And I described Don, Ivanka, and Eric as mini bots. Each and every one of them has a characteristic that is so relatable to Don. Donald Trump, to, but it's not just to Donald Trump. It's to the worst version of Donald Trump. And I just find it when the three of them get together, they try to become their father. And I've watched and witnessed so many fights amongst the three children, especially Don Jr., who has the most animus for his father of all three, would say things to Eric or to Ivanka. Fuck off. All right. Stop acting like dad. And they would be like, uh-huh. He's like, yeah, you're trying to act like dad, all right? So go fuck yourself. And I used to, and the fighting that used to go on between the three of them was incredible because, again, each one was vying to be Voltron's head, in essence, to be Donald Trump. Wait a minute. This reminds me. When you, when you talk about the fighting, didn't you walk in on them physically fighting one time in the office? Yeah, but it was actually play fighting. It was one of the things I write in my book, Disloyal, that I found endearing because they used to do that when they were children. Like um, Don Jr. would pull Ivanka down to the mm -hmm. floor. Eric, who was heavy at the time, very heavy, would sit on her. And then Don Jr. would fart in her face or they would tickle her till she would pee. I mean, you know, but I found it to be endearing because, yes, they are the Trump kids. And yet they were for the first time acting like normal siblings, not this sort of fake plastic bullshit that would go on every single day. Like in the meetings, they would come in with stacks of paper, very much like what they do now. Yes. And most of the pages were blank. I mean, let's just talk for a second about, about them as siblings, because I think this is another really interesting and important point. Don Jr. went to boarding school at 12 or 13. Ivanka was nine and Eric was six. And so they basically stopped being, and their parents got divorced around the same time. So they stopped sort of being a nuclear family that was all together very early on. And then Ivanka went on to go to boarding school and then Eric went on to go to boarding school. And so by the age of 12, Don Jr. and Ivanka and Eric sort of, they stopped living together and they didn't really all get back together again until they were all in their twenties and working at the same company and so they're, they're at this point equally more colleagues than they are siblings. And I think that that really explains their dynamic. Like the, the vast majority of their time spent together has been as coworkers. And when you think about that, it just, it really crystallizes that their, their bond is quite different than 
my bond with my sister or your bond with your siblings. It's not, it's not the same. Right. Well, Vanity Fair, through you, has really given significant coverage to the Trump family's place in New York City society. Can you describe for my listeners what you hear people saying about how and where they will be welcome after January 20th? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time talking to people about this over the last few weeks, particularly when it comes to Jared and Ivanka, because I think that Don and Eric kind of kept to themselves and their kids went to school in Manhattan, but um, they're never part of the, the sort of social scene that Ivanka and Jared wanted to be a part of or were a part of. And so, so when people say, people who were very close friends with them before all of this have said to me, yes, there will be people unequivocally in New York, in New Jersey, where Jared's family lives, in Palm Beach, who will accept them back because of the tax breaks that Trump passed, because of what they did for Israel. Um, there will be people who, who also are going to be intoxicated by the power that they've had over the last few years. And as always in New York, there are people who just like people who have a lot of money and they have a lot of money. But there are eyes everywhere. The, the, the most common thing that I've heard from people who occupy the social scene that they are desperate to come back to is that everyone is watching everyone else. And if anyone deigns to invite them to dinner, to have dinner with them, to go on vacation with them, whatever it may be, that everyone is watching for who will do that and that the people who will do that will suffer social consequences of their own. And I know it sounds so petty because these are adults and this is sort of how like mean girl middle schoolers behave. But these social circles are, are people who are the most powerful people in the world, right? They own or run gigantic companies, uh, real estate empires, billion dollar companies that have been passed down through families and families, celebrities, socialites. They're people whose actions end up in the newspapers, who are constantly followed by paparazzi, who um, are tastemakers and culture makers. And so what they do is, is followed by people and no one wants to be seen as accepting Jared and Ivanka back. And if you had told me that four years ago, I would have said to you, well, if that's the case, then there is no way Jared and Ivanka are going to DC. And I don't think that that's what they anticipated either. I think that they anticipated going and being the, the fresh prince of Kalorama where they lived in Washington, DC and Ivanka would be princess of the universe. And they'd float back to Manhattan as, as the ruler of the free world with access to everything and every door swinging open to them. And then that is actually the opposite of what happened has to be like the most painful thing that I could imagine for them. Well, do you think then that they're going to abdicate their place in New York city and find a home in a more, let's just say, MAGA-friendly environment? No. Because everyone that I know here in New York wants nothing to do with them. Yeah. And, and as you rightfully said, it's not that they have individually an animus towards them, but their business 
their businesses do not permit them to engage in relationships with them because like what happened, for example, at Doral, when people started running away from having events at their at their um, catering facility, yes. because part of that universe will not go to a Trump facility, even if you sent them a solid gold Rolls Royce limousine to bring them there, right? They would not go into the place because they have so much disdain for the bullshit that Trump has done over the and the damage that he has done to this country and to people over the last four years. Yeah, I think I think that the vast majority of New York City will be completely inhospitable toward them. But I think that they will find comfort in a small group of people. And again, one person who was a very longtime friend of Ivanka, an incredibly close friend, um, said something very interesting to me the other day. I asked her if it if it, if she thought it would bother Ivanka to hear people like me writing that there are so many people who won't accept them back. And she said, narcissists don't take criticism like you and I take criticism. That narcissists hear criticism and instead of saying, oh my God, what have I done to make people feel that way about me? Or like, I have to behave differently going forward because I want to be accepted in these places. And I have to say, I'm sorry for the things that I've done or explain myself that, that instead she sees the world as, well, those people, the problem is them. I'm not the problem. And if they don't want to be my friend anymore, then they can go fuck themselves that, that they're the problem and not me. And I think that, that what you will see is the vast majority of New York city against them and they will they will somehow turn it to be that the vast majority is wrong, that they are in the right and everyone else is wrong. And they will probably take comfort in this small group of people that will accept them. And maybe that will be enough for them. Look, all I know is I, as you are also aware, I at one point was the chairman of the board of trustees of a private school here in Manhattan. And I can tell you that they have three children. I would not accept any of their three children. I don't care if they were the next Albert Einstein. We would not accept them because it would cause such a rift within the school that it would become overwhelming. And no school. First of all, they don't donate money. That's the interesting, right? So, and that's what you know, private schools are all about. It's minding the gap so that people who can't afford to go to the school are able to get scholarships to attend. I mean, I myself, well, in my years as um, a board member of this private school here, we put 1,100 children through the school with no tuition by minding the gap, which was um, the term that we always use. But what was interesting, too, is that if you remember from the very beginning, Ivanka wanted to be the first lady. I mean, the unnatural relationship between honey and sweetie and daddy, right? It's, it's unnatural, I mean, I have a daughter and I love her with all of my heart and soul. Because she's the best. Yes, but we do not have the daddy and the honey and sweetie, you know, relationship. Actually, my children call me and have only, as you know, called me by my first name. They've never called me anything but, which is a little unnatural too. But, you know, she wanted to be the first lady. She wanted to decorate the Oval Office. Where is Melania in all of this at the moment? Where has Melania been for the last four years? She has had no interest in being the first lady as we know it. She has really been had no interest in seemingly being 
her husband's wife in the last four years. What is interesting and different is you have this first lady who completely created a vacuum for this very important role. And you had a first daughter who was barely waiting in the wings, just desperate to jump in there. And what I think happened was, and I, so much of this was explained in, in Stephanie Winston Walkoff's book, which I think was along with your book, my two favorite things that I read in 2020. And it just explains the dynamic between the two of them where she called Ivanka princess and she really felt like everything that was hers to do, Ivanka was already planning on doing. There were times where there were traditional first lady events that Melania didn't even have a chance to try and start planning before someone from Ivanka's office would say like, hey, do you want to do this together? Should we meet about what that event is? And Melania was like, what do you mean? Do you want to do this together? Or do you want to meet about this? This has nothing to do. Why are you even involved in this? Why are you even talking to me about this? And, and maybe it's because Melania didn't seem to have any desire to be part in them. And maybe Ivanka felt like, well, someone has to do them, but it's very presumptuous and uh, completely out of line for Ivanka to jump in without anyone asking her. And I think so much of that is that she's not really told no by her father very often. You would know this. Yeah, except he never really listened to her either, right? So planning an event, Trump could give two shits about it, right? So he actually enjoys chaos, which is why I've termed him, and it's become a trending hashtag now, Captain Chaos. Yeah. He actually enjoys watching Ivanka spa against Melania. There's some sort of feeling that he elicits watching people spying and fighting with one another. I mean, as you appropriately put it, Ivanka had no business involving herself in the first lady's affairs. She is a senior advisor, but for the fact that her last name is Trump, she should have had nothing to do with the event. She should never even be calling the first lady, except if it had something to do with the president and something that maybe they required the presence of the first lady. But she took it on herself in actuality to become the pro-tunk first lady. And I do know from personal conversation with Melania that it really pissed her off a lot. There is no love between, which this is interesting too, there is no love between Ivanka and Melania. But what's interesting, there is no love between any of the siblings of the children. So we're talking about Eva uh, Jared with Don Jr. and his spouse, and well, I should say ex-wife, ex uh, and now with Kimberly, as well as Eric with Laura, they always talked negative about one another's spouses, the things that they would say about Jared and his sexuality, the things that they would talk about Laura and her looks, right? I mean, Don Jr. was by far the funniest when it would come to that. He actually has a, a, a very caustic sense of humor. I mean, the ripping of Laura that would go on in, in, the, in the place. And of course, you know, everybody would just shit on Don, right? I'm talking about yeah. Jr. Um, it, I always found it to be disheartening because I have three siblings and I don't talk about my in-laws that way, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law. I don't talk about them that way. And if I felt that way, I would keep my mouth shut. 
instead of airing it in front of everybody. And yet now they try to portray this one big, happy, dysfunctional family, right? All going to Aspen together or going to Mar-a-Lago to celebrate, you know, the holiday. Well, the, the thing is, is that because you, every family has their Michigas, right? And every sibling relationship has its own rivalries and there's always competition for parents' affection and whatever it is. You like, I can talk shit with the best of them. I complain, I can sometimes complain about my sister, whatever it is. But we come from a place of love. First and foremost, I would do anything for my sister. I would do anything for my brother-in-law. She would do anything for my fiance. Like there's no question that we love each other. We'd kill for each other. They don't come from a place of love. They come from a place of competition. And because they feel, it feels like love was such a scarce resource in that household that there was never enough to go around. There was barely enough to cover anybody. They didn't have that unconditional thing that most families have. Love was very conditional, very conditional. And when that that's the case, you're constantly, it's like when you don't have enough food to go around, everyone's hoarding their scraps. And that's what it feels like in their family. Everyone is hoarding the proximity to Donald because they never felt like there was enough of him to go around. What's really interesting, and I want to just point it out, is you were saying that, you know, but for Ivanka's name, she had no place in making those calls. But the fact that her last name was Trump should have made it so she had no business making those calls in the first place. You know, it's illegal. Before all this happened, it was illegal for members of the president's family to work in his family. There is an anti-nepotism law on the books for 50 years since the Kennedys that the president was not allowed to hire people in his family. And for, for with no explanation, really, the Trumps just deemed during the transition in 2016 that that law just didn't apply to them. And there was never like... I don't know what recourse there could have been because I know that government watchdogs had, had called it out at the time, but they just said, you know what, this law doesn't apply to them and they're just going to work there and it's going to be no problem. But it is a problem. And we saw why it was a problem over and over and over again. Remember when Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump could not get security clearances because of their financial ties and because of the fact that they continue to use private email servers, even after they spent years hammering Hillary Clinton for using private email servers, they could not get security clearance. And daddy Donald had to step in and overrule the CIA and say, well, give them, give them access to the, the top level security that they needed to be part of the presidential daily briefing and all the meetings that they needed to go to. That is why you are not allowed to work in the White House as a family member because the president is making irrational decisions that are flying in the face of national security issues because it serves his daughter and his son-in-law. It's just so unjust and so immoral. And the fact that they were there in the first place kind of explains the way that they operated over the last four years in, in just one little small anecdote. You know, one of the reasons that Ivanka and Jared had an animus towards me um, going into the White House, despite the fact that we always had a relatively good relationship, was Trump asked me in the office during the um, the transition, what do I think? And they were both in the office at the time. What do I think about them being senior advisors? And I said, are you out of your mind? I'm like, why? First of all, let them stay here. You have you have these nepotism laws that are on the books for a reason. I hate the idea. Now, if you want them 
to go to D.C., just to be around you at nighttime, to come over, have dinner, to bounce things off them, so long as it's not national security, no problem. But the notion that you're bringing both of them on as senior advisors, to me, is pure stupidity. As we all know, 666 Fifth Avenue was the single worst real estate deal done by anyone in the history of New York City real estate. And that was done by Jared. And in all fairness, if it wasn't for this mystery money that came in, that bailed out 666, Kushner Company would be bankrupt right now. So these are the things. All of a sudden, he's often running to the Arab Emirates. He's often running to Saudi Arabia. He's often having these clandestine meetings. Rest assured, all of their bullshit will come, will come out one, one of these days. Now that everything, of course, is by email and they're no longer in power, someone's going to end up dropping a bomb on all of them. And that's what Trump is walking around so brutish about, you know, with his thumb in his mouth, you know, scratching his diaper and shit. I mean, they're all they've all lost their mind because now they're not protected. And if they were protected, all of the bad stuff that's going to come against them, the statute of limitations would have run out. So it's really a good thing. But I do want to ask you, the White House now, since, of course, we're all dealing with this crazy pandemic. The White House is planning an absurd, a absolutely stupid, stupid super spreader Christmas party in the midst of this frightening COVID pandemic and the surge that's going around right now, along with scores of administration officials who have already gotten infected. And now we know Rudy Giuliani is now infected. By the way, good. These events are becoming more bizarre every single day, like Stalin-era spectacles to honor the leader. My question is, why haven't they just left or refused to show up? There's 50 or so days left. Why would anyone risk their life and what's left of their reputation for this man if they continue to behave the way that they're behaving? I think that, again, they don't, they see themselves as sort of above all of this. Like they continue, you know, when they walked into the debate stage right before the president got COVID and they were required, the entire family was required to wear masks. Everyone in the arena was required to wear masks. And they walked into the arena with their masks and they pulled them off in front of the camera. And they sat there maskless the entire time, despite the fact that the president was likely infected with coronavirus at that point. Now, I don't think that they knew it, but it was very clearly a possibility because he was infected. And it just speaks to the fact that they think that they are above everything. They think they are above the law. They think they are above this virus. They think they're above consequence. And I think what, what the last three months in particular has going to show the rest of us is they aren't above the law. They aren't above this virus. They aren't above consequences. And they just still haven't been shown the light. Like the fact that they would continue to host these parties, by the way, it's not just a Christmas party. They have their annual Hanukkah party on December 9th, right? Which I know that you have been a guest at. Yes. And the Christmas party too, went b- before I became the felon that I am. You know, speaking of speaking of which, Kaylee McEnany, mm-hmm. right? I, I can't get sometimes her out of, out of my head because when I had met her, she's a bright young lady who has so become, it, it's very, or it's almost eerily similar to Star Wars, 
right? With Ben Kenobi becoming Darth Vader. I mean, she's turned to the fucking dark side, right? Does she actually believe the torrent of lies and bullshit that she spreads each and every day? Or does she simply see no future for herself outside of Donald Trump and is thus showing the 100% loyalty to him so that she could ride away with him to Mar-a-Lago and somehow be installed as his mouthpiece there or somewhere when he becomes Trump network news network, like a TNN with Newsmax or X, uh, with OAN or one of these other, you know, um, crazy right, right, right wing groups. I think that people around Trump have this thing where because really so few things stick to Trump, that they start to believe that few things stick to them. And because he gets away with everything and he's sort of a cockroach who is unkillable, that they think that nothing will stick to them. And we've seen time and time again, that that does not apply to everybody else, that everyone around him doesn't have that but I could shoot someone down Fifth Avenue and no one would care. Everyone else gets caught for shooting someone on Fifth Avenue. And I think that that's sort of what's happening with Kaylee a little bit where she feels like, okay, well, I may be saying all this crazy shit and the shit is crazy, but I can just abandon it when it doesn't serve me anymore. What I think that all those people who operate like, well, I'll be able to recover from this and I will just move on and no one will hold me accountable. It's like, they will be held accountable for what they said and did. All of it is on tape. And right now that may seem like some a risk that she's willing to take. There will come a time not so long from now where everything that she has done will come home to roost. And I don't think that she's anticipating that. And I totally agree with you. And you'll remember it was your famous interview of me when we were in the Hamptons um, that where I stated that I would have taken a bullet for Trump. And the truth is, I really yes. would have, except for if he was the one pulling the trigger. And rest assured, Kaylee McEnany, here's my prediction. He will throw your ass under the bus as quick, if not quicker, than he did to me. And she, too, like so many others, will ultimately pay the price that, like I have paid, which is with your life, your freedom, your, your family's happiness, and so on. Emily, let me say this. Axios is reporting that Trump is planning a dramatic made-for-TV exit from the White House on the same day as the Biden inauguration that will have him departing the White House via Marine One and jetting off to Florida on Air Force One, where a massive, massive MAGA rally will be waiting to cheer him on, right? Ch creating the possibility of some sort of split-screen moment with a socially distanced inauguration on one side and Trump's to his winter White House on the other screen. Do you see this as a power move on the part of Trump signaling the beginning of a nonstop counter-narrative and Biden attack machine that will attempt to pummel and undermine the president-elect into submission, in essence, allowing Trump an easier path to walk back into the White House going to 2024? Or do you think that Trump is finished and once he's gone, people will begin to forget about him and he will become increasingly irrelevant as the country moves on? Well, I think that the answer to that question will lie in what the media decides to do, right? This display is pathetic. That he is, that he is planning this is like, 
it's so lame. The only, that's the only way I can describe it. It's like the, the, the football team in high school that loses is like going to walk into the prom in like the, the merch that they bought as if they were winners, but they actually lost the game. It's so dumb. It's so juvenile and it just goes to show you how how much his ego needs in order for him to survive i think of the media if they just don't broadcast it because there's no need to broadcast it if they focus their attention on the actual president who won the election and on the traditions that this country usually upholds and celebrates and tunes out his pathetic little florida rally and they continue to focus on what matters the people who are actually in Washington doing what the American electorate voted them to do and they ignore him, then he won't exist. Trump, all he wants, and you know this better than anybody, is he wants to be relevant, right? He wants to be the center of everyone's universe. That is what he has always wanted. And over the last five years, even though much of the attention has been negative, he has just wanted the attention. And if the media cuts off that oxygen, he will shrivel. He will disappear because if he can do whatever he wants, he can continue to hold these rallies. And if people show up, God bless them. That is their right as Americans to, to do and protest and rally for whoever they choose. But if no one's paying attention to it beyond the people who show up to that rally, then he will stop doing it because he's not fed by that constant oxygen cycle anymore. He All he wants is to pick up the New York Times and to see him on the front page. If the New York Times make the decision that this these rallies aren't worth covering anymore and he's no longer on the front page, he's done. He's irrelevant. That is his worst fear. And I think that it is really our responsibility as members of the media to do what's right here. And I understand that he is incredibly entertaining. I understand that he has been incredibly good for the news business. People want to tune in. People want to read about him. They want to watch him. They want to hear about him because he's ridiculous. But it's enough already. He lost. He's irrelevant now. You don't tune into what other former presidents are doing on a daily basis because there are actual people in power doing the things that we elect them to do. And I think it is our responsibility to cut off that oxygen and to let him shrivel and and to treat him the way we treat the rest of 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 loser politicians. And I believe that Trump knows that. Yes. And is aware that something like this is going to happen, which is why he is now 100% set on creating his own news network, the Trump News Network. This is something that baby boy genius Jared had brought to his attention many years ago when he used to sit and brag and Ivanka used to sit there and she was gleaming with like her big her big eyes with the eyelashes, you know, the fake eyelashes bouncing up and down. Oh, my Jared, he's so smart. Rupert says that he's like the greatest newspaper man since Rupert. I mean... Dude, you had the fucking New York Observer, which you which was smaller than Penny Saver, that you ended up selling to or giving to David Pecker, and you beat him out for like fifty grand in you know in in um subscriptions. Trump knows that he needs Trump News Network for two reasons. One, of course, is which to stay relevant. So he doesn't need MSNBC or CNN or ABC, NBC, Fox. He doesn't need any of them anymore because in his mind, and this is where he's delusional, he has 100 million social media followers. 
And he believes inaccurately that all 100 million of these individuals are supporters and fans. And he'll constantly say stupid things like, I'm bigger than the New York Times by a thousand. I'm actually bigger than Fox, New York Times, ABC, and NBC all combined with my 100 million followers. And I remember once saying to him, uh, it's not really how it works there, boss, right? Not everybody that follows you on Twitter is a fan. Actually, many of the people that follow you just want to tell you to go fuck yourself, and this is the platform that they can do it, all right? So at the end of the day, these aren't people that you're going to swindle, and this is round two, he needs the money, that you're not going to be able to swindle these so-called supporters for your $4.99 a month to be a member of TNN, right, of Trump Network News. But he knows this too, because one thing, rest assured, that tr Donald Trump is, he's, he's stupid. That is, that's a fact. He's really ignorant, but not when it comes to being dastardly, like what he's thinking. There's 100 million people out there. All he needs is 20 million of them at $4.99 or five bucks a month. That's $100 million a month, $1.2 a year for his Trump News Network. And he's just going to jump on the platform, make some sort of a great deal with um, uh, Chris Ruddy of Newsmax or OAN and create this platform that they already have stupid Sean Spicer there and that they have already a platform that's going. Because as you know, the news cycle is the same hour after hour after hour, despite the fact that they keep calling it breaking news. Nothing is new since 4.30 in the morning. So if you watch 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, right, as I do, like with Casey Hunt, wait, way too early, you already know the news cycle for at least until 5 o'clock that, that day. But now that, we're, now that we're finishing up the hour, I want to ask you one last question, Em. Switching gears for the moment. How do you think that the news business fares upon the departure of Donald Trump? Because it's pretty much undebatable that, for example, and you just mentioned that the New York Times and others will suffer a loss in page views once the craziness moves on. I mean, everybody likes crazy, right? So, and the same, of course, as I said, holds with CNN or MSNBC or uh, any of the other stations. What does a normal Joe Biden news cycle even look like? What is the news cycle going to look like now that Trump is going to be gonzo? It's a great question. And I think it's one that every newsroom is grappling with. I am employed by two separate news organizations and it's a conversation that, that everyone is having. We, the reality is we are still in a global pandemic now and we are probably at the worst point in that pandemic. And I think that that will and should continue to dominate the coverage, um, at least in the near term and probably over the next year. I think a, a Biden administration will seem boring by comparison. And that is that is a true understatement. And I think that's a blessing. I am, as a reporter who has been so energized by all of the news over the last four years and have have gotten to work on so many incredible stories and, and meet so many uh, very, very interesting people. I'm excited to be bored a little bit. I am excited for the respite that this will provide. What I think the, the true blessing over the last five years for me is that the, the 
American public has understood how important journalism is and what it can do to shed light on uh, injustices that are happening or powerful people who maybe shouldn't be in power or who are abusing their power. And I think that going forward, there will continue to be that understanding of just how hard the good reporters work and how important their work is. But I think that there will be a real reckoning when it comes to, um, you know, everyone has been glued to cable news nonstop, even though there is not a ton of breaking news. Everyone is watching it 24 hours a day. Everyone is constantly on their Twitter feed. That will not be the case in two years from now, I would imagine. I would imagine things will settle back into a much more normal, healthy swing. And we will go on to be able to appreciate the things in our lives that don't feel so chaotic again. And I think that's a good thing. There are a lot of stories that we weren't able to tell over the last four years of good things that are happening in this country or of bad things that we couldn't devote the attention to because every day felt like a five alarm fire in that Trump White House. We had no time to think of anything beyond what was happening in the West Wing because everything that was happening in the West Wing was so fucking crazy. And now we will be able to, to take a step back and say, you know what, what are these pockets of the country that we are missing that we didn't get to cover in 2016 through 2020 because we had no mental ability to separate ourselves from Washington. And I think that that will be a beautiful thing that we'll get to cover a lot more and the breadth will be wider because we won't be constantly glued to this train wreck going forward. Or you'll be able to tell the story completely instead of partially, right? I mean, for example, it would make no difference if there was a nuclear attack going on while Rudy Giuliani is expelling Flatus while speaking at a hearing. And to those people that don't know what that is, that's just, that's dropping wind, right? Or farting. I mean, he, he thinks he's like, you know, one of these uh, gladiators, right? Uh, expel Flatus, expel Flatus. I mean, the guy's sitting there and he farts at an open hearing. Now, I can't imagine how you as a person in the news just wishes that something like that goes away. I mean, when was the last time that you had the personal attorney to the president of the United States just ripping one in the middle of a hearing? I mean, this is just classic. Saturday Night Live could not have written a better skit than that. They, he, Saturday Night Live could not have written a crazier presidential four years than what has already taken. I mean, I'm not sure how Saturday Night Live moves on. I mean, you know, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, they're just not they're not in that orbit of crazy. They're just going to try to work to bring the country back together to stop the divisiveness, to actually pass a single policy that benefits the country as a whole as opposed to the one hundredth of one percent, right? Um, I just don't know how you get past losing that kind of crazy, that mishigas, as we like to say in, in Hebrew, in Yiddish. I mean, I just don't know how you fill up the airwaves except telling a complete story and allowing journalists like yourself to do more fact-checking. Because I do believe that Facts matter, and I do believe that now that the crazy will be over, that you'll have more time to fact check as opposed to this 
constant one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, get it out, get it out. Um, if it's not a hundred percent accurate, you have your two sources. Okay. Run, run, go with it because somebody else will grab your scoop. Look, every good reporter who I know, and I know so many of them, all we want to do is, is get things right. And to serve our readers. I think that everyone has, has very good intentions. I hope that, that for reporters, but for everybody, everyone just has a little bit more time to breathe now that everyone has a little bit more time to not just focus on the craziness and, and tune into the spectacle, but everyone can just take a little bit more time to like spend with their families to read a book. I, I until the election, I was not able to read a fiction book this entire last four years because my like my my mind couldn't turn off. I used to read a book a week and I just couldn't do it over the last four years. I'm very excited for this country at large to be able to just take a step back and to take a breath and to just move on with our lives. Democracy is really resilient and it had, it has worked a certain way for 200 plus years. And Donald Trump was an aberration. He's not the norm. And I'm just really grateful and excited to be back in the norm. Well, Emily, thank you so much. You know, I got a chance in prison to read 57 books, but you don't want to go there in order to get your reading uh, desires back. Yes. <laughs> so Emily, thank you so much. It's great to see you. It's great to speak to you. I look forward to you coming back to New York. And um, Born Trump was, as I said, I, I read it. It was phenomenal and um, you know, tremendous insight into the family and this dynamics. So you be strong, be safe. Wear your mask. I know you're in Los Angeles, right? Come on back, you know, safe and healthy. I'll be there soon. And now for today's mea culpa. With just 36 days to go until the inauguration, I am hopeful that we have finally reached the end of this nasty election charade. That said, we have already witnessed how much damage can be done in a mere five weeks. That's how much time has passed since the election and how much time we have left to go. In the previous five weeks, I felt time slow to a crawl, with the days feeling like weeks and the weeks like months and sometimes years. It is odd and discomforting to feel stuck in time, helpless and unable to push forward the time of history and escape the petty tyranny of Donald Trump. In many respects, America under the grips of COVID and Trump's election fraud mania was similar to my experience within solitary confinement. Not so much the overall condition, as nothing compares to the horror and brutality of prison and the numbing, soul-destroying sadness of incarceration, but the feeling of helplessness and disconnection that comes from being locked in a cage. You are so far gone, buried and unable to reach outside of yourself and see the light at the end of the tunnel, that time itself ceases to function as normal. Days and weeks in solitary confinement might as well be decades in how far away you get from yourself. The same can be said for now, albeit at a much smaller scale. What is the same is the feeling of despair at your inability to move forward when every day is the same as the last. In manufacturing a reality where we are all trapped in the present, Trump incarcerated us all in a prison of his own lies and madness. And for a brief moment, as we counted down the days, we were actually stuck with him. I pray to God that this never happens again. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. 
Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. Guys, we gotta put our trays up for takeoff. Where's Dad? Oh, he's in the back. We could only get three seats together. Daddy has my pillow. Okay, well, we'll get it later. Can you not put your feet up, please? Why aren't we going? I'm not sure, honey. We must be in line for takeoff. Like security? Well, that was a different line. I have to go. We just sat down. But I have to go. The seatbelt sign's on. Why aren't we moving? Hey, you no picking. We're just 15th in line for takeoff. Son of a... Don't go there. Go on a real vacation. Go RVing.